verses um, before we begin. So hopefully you should be opening your Bibles or have your Bible app to where it needs to be. Chapter 2, verse 11. Remember, when we looked at this many weeks ago, but Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Then he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, as we as hopefully we are all scanning down the rest of what chapter 2 has to say, various commands are given, and I'd like to ask you guys, kind of hope to jog your memory a little bit here, as we've, uh, for those of you who have been here, as we've looked over these passages in 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3, what are some of the commands, what are some of the topics that we have been discussing recently? And if you need help to answer that, you can literally look at it. What are some things we've been talking about? Yeah, Rebecca. Submission to government. government. Excellent. And that covers like a whole section there. Um, And how we are supposed to, unlike the world, which rebels against authority oftentimes, hates being subjected to authority because ultimately they hate having to subject themselves to the authority of God. They hate government. And yet we are supposed to submit to government in everything that does not contradict God's law. And we're supposed to be examples in that. Good. What else? What else have we talked about? My God. Mm-mm. Yeah, so like um, when you're in the workplace and you are underneath people who are in charge of you telling you how you need to work, how you need to do your job, we are supposed to be in submission to them as well. Um, and really, we, as we talked about it many times, all authority uh, is covered when it comes to our need for submission. We are supposed to be submissive to all authority that God has placed over us because he's the one who put it there. And if we're supposed to be obeying God, then we're supposed to be obeying all the authorities that God has put over us. Excellent. Um, and then more recently, what have we been talking about? The past two or three weeks. Yes. Wives being submissive to their husbands. Yes. And then the flip side of that, what's the other side of that? We've also talked about what? Yes, husbands be understanding of their wives. Just the idea of what it looks like in marriage for men and women who are married husbands and wives uh, to each other, that they ought to be loving each other. They ought to be selfless towards each other. And it looks different based on the role that a wife has and the role that a husband has. And yet, in the way in which those work themselves out, they're supposed to be loving each other and submitting to each other, completely unlike how the world views marriage and how it views really relationships in general. So we've seen all of that, and really that all is flowing out of what we read in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Peter is urging us, if we are true believers, he's urging us to live for the Lord, to live for God, to live to glorify God, because we don't belong to this world anymore. We don't belong to the sinful culture, to the sinful ideals, to the sinful desires, if we have been bought with the blood of Christ. And so we ought to be living like that instead of being content to just go along with the flow of the rest of culture and what they have to do. And so all these commands are so countercultural. And Then they all lead up to chapter 3, verse 8, which is where we are going to be tonight. So let's go ahead and read it. So hopefully you're there and reading along with me. First chapter, first Peter, chapter 3, starting in verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love, and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
We've seen a lot of practical applications in the past few weeks for how we ought to be living our lives, and hopefully those have been helpful for you. Hopefully uh, some of them uh, you are going, well, I'm not really at that point in life yet. I'm not really having to respond to governmental authority a whole lot. I'm not having to respond necessarily to a work environment necessarily. I am not married, and so I don't exactly get opportunities to fully flesh out what it really means to be a wife or to be a husband, but that's been helpful. I, I'm, and I see ways in which I can live that out now. Um, but with these verses, with what Peter has here, this is very practical for us and very, really instantly practical for us as we see how we ought to be living amongst each other and really everyone else we come in contact with. It's a final exhortation that Peter has to give to us. And that's why he says to sum up. And so on your outline, you have letter A, the final point what you are to be. Now, clearly, this is not the final point of his whole entire letter because there's still two more chapters. Um, but this is the final, part of this, the final part of this segment of Peter's exhortation. And when he says to sum up, uh, some of you might think of the idea of wanting to explain something. Oh, no, it's going to take too long. Let me just sum up all of the information in one phrase. And that's not what this is talking about. This is more the finale of a musical production uh, the final act of a story, all of the pieces have been woven together to this final culmination, this final thing that you are going to experience that has been building up from everything before it. And that's what Peter is going for here. He's saying, to sum up, I've said all of this. I've given you all this information about how you're supposed to be responding to authority, how you're supposed to be living in the workplace, how you're supposed to be loving each other, how wives and husbands are supposed to relate to each other. I've given you the example of Christ in the midst of that. He suffered, and yet he, he continued to be humble, and he continued to love. And all of those things should be making you think about, well, just in general, how should I be treating other people? I know specifically how I need to be treating various authorities, but what about in general, what should my life be looking like? And that's what Peter is giving to us here. And he says, first of all, that we are to be, and, that's, and here we go, letter A, we are to be harmonious. And this, is, and this word is such an excellent picture of what this means. It, it represents unity within diversity. You have the musical illustration right there in front of you, and you don't have to be a major in music theory in order to understand the idea that you can have one note or one series of notes that is playing and makes a melody. You guys recognize various songs because they have a particular tune to them. But you also know that there's various other notes that are going on in the background, but they're not the main part. The melody is the main part, but all the other pieces, they help enhance the main tune of whatever song it is you're listening to. And those elements, usually, are harmonies. Those elements are helping to accentuate and help drive and focus the melody to make it more impactful, to make, it, to make you appreciate it more, to give it a fuller sound or a lesser sound, depending on how the sound is being mixed and, how, and what kind of instruments are being played, etc. And yet, they're not just all going off and doing their own thing. It's not like you have this country song here, and you have this rap song here, and you have this you know, pop song here, and you take all the melodies and you just start playing them all at once. That is a disaster. They're all working together. It's one song, and it only has one melody, and everything else is helping enhance it. It's all going with one particular purpose. And that's what we have when we, when we think of harmonies and we think of how we ought to be harmonious. And it's also similar in a workplace situation. For those of you who are familiar with how restaurants operate, everyone can't be the manager. Everyone shouldn't be the register worker. Everyone shouldn't be the person in the back making all the food. Because if everyone was doing that, what about all the other positions that need to be filled? Every position is important, and every position has to be filled so that together everyone can be working in a harmonious fashion to accomplish a goal, to accomplish an objective, that is to serve the customer and serve them well. Well, in our case, our purpose, our goal, should be to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. As Christians, our lives and what we are doing with our lives may certainly be different 
and what we're accomplishing. Many of you are going to school, um, and many of you are doing different subjects in school. Many of you, as you're thinking about college, are looking into very different pursuits that you would like to do in college. Some of you aren't even thinking about college at all, and you just want to go directly into work. Now, speaking of work, some of you are working various jobs, and many of them are different. You're not all working in the same place. There's so many different ways in which our lives are unique, they're different, they're doing different things, and yet we're all supposed to have a same mindset, a, a similar unity around the reality and truth of Scripture and around a desire to honor God. And so practically, I would ask you, is your life harmonizing to God's will? And um, you're, we're going to be doing this a lot as we carry on through this evening. We're gonna, you have your outline points there, and those are helpful for you to be able to track through how far I am in what I'm saying, and also for you to follow along in, ah, this, this associates with this verse that he's just read. Um, but I would encourage you to go a step further in your note-taking if you don't already, and that is look for open space to where, as we bring more practical things to bear, if anything is impactful for you, to write it down, because that will help you remember it. So practically, is your life harmonizing to God's will? And what I mean by that is, are you obeying the scripture? Are you obeying what you know you're supposed to be doing? Are you desiring to read God's word? Are you desiring to pray to the one who gives you life and breath and spiritual strength? Are you desiring to be in fellowship with the church of God? All these things that we continuously talk to you about over and over and over again, things you know you're supposed to be doing as a Christian, that ways in which you know you're supposed to be living, are you actually doing them? Because if you're not, you're not in harmony with what God's will has for you. You're in harmony with your own idea of what you ought to be doing with your life. And as a result, you're not being very effective. If you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, well, your life is not harmonizing with God's will at all. But secondly, do you know what the people in this room are doing with their lives? Just on a, on a, on a very simple, general level. If you were to think of all the people here in this youth group, or even some of the older people in the back, do you have any idea what they do with their lives? Do you have any idea what they like to do, what they don't like to do, and kind of what they're pursuing with their lives right now, what their goals are, what their, what their pursuits are? Do you have any thoughts on that? And then secondly, not sorry, thirdly, are you praying for them? Because you can't, it's difficult to be able to be specific in your prayer for them if you don't have any idea what they're doing, or where their life is at. And also, if you do know what they're doing, and you know how they're living their lives, and you're desiring to pray for them, are you also seeking to help your friends' lives harmonize with God's will, just as hopefully you are desiring to be harmonizing with God's will as well? You can't live in harmony with someone, as Peter has, been, has just told us to do. You can't be harmonious with other people if you don't know what their song is, if you don't know what their tune is, you can't be in harmony with it. And you can't help direct their tune correctly if your own isn't in harmony with God's will. So that's be harmonious. Next we have letter B, be sympathetic. This involves being understanding. You're not necessarily resonating with someone's experience, like someone has experienced something either very joyful or very difficult, and you're going, and sympathy is not going, ah, I know exactly what's going on. I have felt that exact same way. I have gone through that exact same thing. That can be helpful, but that's not exactly what sympathy is. It's more resonating with the emotion, being able to sense that they are experiencing emotion, whether happy or sorrowful, and you're able to understand why they would be joyful or sad, and therefore you know how you can act accordingly. Romans 12:15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Too often we are unsympathetic to the world. And what do I mean by that? Uh, well, to give you an example from my own workplace, a lot of times, well, not a lot of times, all the time, uh, I work with people who are professing believers, and I work with people who are not professing believers. 
who don't live godly lifestyles, and I can see the effects of it at work. I can see the things that they talk about. I can see the music that they like to listen to. I can hear them talk about kind of what their lives are like, um, the kind of disarray that their family life might be in, or that their relationships are in, or that their friendships are in, or that, or that their mental health or their physical health is in disarray, and anything in between. And oftentimes I can look at that and be like, huh, serves you, right? I mean, you're not honoring God. You're not loving Him. Of course your life would be ending up like this. I mean, I see that you're in pain, but like, that's your fault. And there's an element of truth to the fact that if you are sinning, there are consequences for sin. But there is a very unhealthy viewpoint that you can have of other people that often stems from being uh, adhering to Calvinist ideas when it comes to the depravity of man, that all men are sinful, and those kinds of things, that can make us unsympathetic towards people. When people are, are undergoing pain and suffering, whether or not they brought it about upon themselves or whether it just happened to them, too often we can think too much highly of the theology and of the way and of the reality of their sinful state and not seek to express love to them and not seek to express care and concern for them, and instead we just keep them at a distance. Instead we just make sure we disassociate ourselves from them in every way because we don't want to be touched or tainted or affected by them. And it's good that we shouldn't seek to, you know, involve ourselves in the kind of sinful things they do. We shouldn't seek to participate in their lifestyle or in their mindset, but we are called to reach out to the world to seek to draw them to Christ. And so to be unsympathetic towards people who are suffering, towards people who are undergoing tremendous difficulty is completely the opposite of what we have been called to do in Scripture. We can also be unsympathetic towards each other, towards fellow believers. Often, uh, especially, especially around here and especially when it comes to the um, homeschool movement and many of us are in homeschool families, we can be, we have been shielded from a lot of pain and sorrow, and a lot of times it's hard for us to really understand what extreme difficulty is like. Now, I know that some of you, for some of you, that is not the case at all, and so I'm not saying that all of us are like that. Um, but a lot of times, it's very easy to, to grow up in, um, especially with a, with a home that loves the Lord, to be protected from recognizing that there is pain and difficulty and suffering around us, and so when you see it, when you see other people that are suffering, when you see other people that are, um, that are in incredibly sorrowful, that, are, that have just experienced some kind of incredible loss, either someone that they loved um, or something difficult has happened in their parent's job or who knows what it might be, because we don't, we've never maybe necessarily experienced something like that, we don't want to try to be sympathetic and so we just avoid the situation. And that's not loving. That's not being what we have been called to do, which is be sympathetic. We should not be uh, trying to avoid showing sympathy towards people who are wrestling. So practically, do you appropriately respect and, and sympathize with the sorrow of others, even if there's something you need to talk about with them? So even if their sorrow, whether they're an unbeliever or whether they are a believer, even if their sorrow is ungodly, they're, they're sad because they didn't get their way. <laughs> they're sad um, because their will has been thwarted um, or because some, some long-desired dream has been completely destroyed. Even if you need to have a discussion with them to go, you know, that's not necessarily the right way to think about things, can you still seek to do it in such a way where you recognize that they're full of sorrow and not seek to bash them over the head um, in some high and mighty, hyper-Calvinistic, abrasive way, and, and really you're not gonna get anything that you're trying to say across at all because you're not doing it in love. But on the flip side, do you appropriately respect the joy of others, even if there's something to be addressed? So if you are, if you yourself have a tendency towards maybe not necessarily being incredibly joyful, you are kind of more on the side that leans towards being easily depressed or being easily sad uh, just when things don't go your way, are you able to see the joy that other people have? And instead of being a downer, instead of seeking to drag them down with you, 
Seek to also learn how to sympathize with their joy. Seek to learn how to be joyful with other people and be sympathetic in that way. Uh, as a side note, this doesn't mean that you can't, uh, and we've kind of gone over this, this doesn't mean you can't encourage people if they're sad. It doesn't mean you can't discuss serious matters with someone who is perhaps incredibly joyful, but they're joyful for the, very, for the wrong reasons. They're joyful because they got their way in something and they had sinned in order to get it, and so they're really happy that it worked out, and you're like, dude, you shouldn't be happy about that. Um, that's entirely appropriate. What this means is that you address people with care and with maturity. You're sympathetic to their emotional state, and thus you're going to be careful with how you talk with them and how you discuss things with them if something needs to be said. So that's being sympathetic. Next we have letter C, brotherly. Be brotherly. Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. There are a few things tied in the familial bond. Uh, most of you have siblings, and I am not exempt from that. Um, and I would relate to you the following sentiment. As I used to now, uh, used to live with my sisters, um, most definitely there are times in which I have been incredibly upset at them or been bitter at them or been angry at them or just treated them horribly, um, ways in which they have done the same to me. They've been upset at me. They've annoyed me. They've, you know, done whatever it is. We, we commit sin against one another. And yet, I would give my life for them. I would do anything for them if their safety was at risk. And I would do more than that, though. I would desire to pay attention to what's going on in their lives, to be able to experience things with them uh, as I can, to be able to talk with them and have a relationship with them because they are my family. And this idea of being brotherly has, it has the sense of being selfless. And really, it's basically a way of relating the secular idea of what it means to, you know, have a family bond, because that's really the one of the closest ways in which the world can get to being selfless. You know, you've seen or you've read stories or, or watched TV shows or movies or just experienced it in daily life where someone would never give money to a, another random stranger. They would never let them stay in their house. They would never drive them somewhere that they want to go. But if they are family, Absolutely, they will do that for them. They will help them out however they can, even if, even if, even if they're an estranged family member, oftentimes. They will do that for them because they're family. That's really one of the closest ways in which the world can get to truly being selfless. And so what Peter is doing is he's taking that idea and expanding it and empowering it with the love that Christ has to know, to be saying no, you are truly to be selfless, and it looks like the kind of selfless love that you would have for your own family. And so practically, first, for those of you who have siblings, are you being brotherly or sisterly to them? Are you selfless towards them? Do you care for their well-being? Do you value time spent with them? I can think back to many times in which uh, my parents organized times in which we were not going to go hang out with friends or go to uh, this event. Instead, we were going to spend some time as family. And a lot of that is a lot of decisions regarding whether or not families do things or whether or not they stay together or whatever. Um, a lot of those are conscience issues, but just for me, that's what sometimes what my family did. And a lot of times, I would be really upset about that. I was like, I don't want to spend time with my family. I want to spend time with other people. Um, and yet, as I look back on it, I'm so appreciative for those times because they helped me learn to develop a love for my family and learn to develop a desire to love my family and to be with them and to be selfless with them. If you cannot love your own family members well, you can't love your spiritual family well. If you can't love the ones that you are constantly around, that you are always close to, that you're always perhaps having to rub against, you're having to rub wills against them, if you're constantly having to come underneath uh, the family, the familial authorities in your life, if you can't learn to love those people 
then you're not going to truly love the people in the church. So are you brotherly? Letter D, kind-hearted. This has an idea of being tender, compassionate. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I was so appreciative of the sermon this past Sunday when, we, when Jesus responds to the question, uh, well, really, it was, this, was a par- this is a parallel passage. Uh, Jesus responded to the question of what is the greatest commandment? And he says, well, to honor the Lord your God and also to love your neighbor as yourself. And the question is asked, is asked well, who is your neighbor? And then he tells the story of the Samaritan man who takes care of this man who was robbed and then it's posed, so then as a result of that story, who is your neighbor? Well, it's, it's anyone that needs mercy and compassion. <laughs> it's so perfect. What did we sing as one of our songs? Everyone needs compassion. Everyone needs love that is never failing. And so everyone is our neighbor, and thus we are to be kind-hearted and tender and showing compassion to everyone. And... So the practical question for you is, when you view other people, do you view them in a way in which you're like, what can I get from this person? How can this person help me get what I want? Or instead, does this person need, first of all, do they need the mercy and compassion of Christ? Are they saved? And then second of all, how can I be a blessing to this person and show the love of Christ to them and whatever their needs may be? This also has one final element attached with it, and I bring it up because it's in Ephesians 4.32, the idea of forgiveness. One thing that is sometimes hard to do, one of the hardest things that we can desire to do is forgive someone who has wronged us. Um, And yet, if we are called to be tender and compassionate towards people and we are called to render unto them the same kind of love that Christ rendered to us, then we should be desiring to forgive. Matthew 18, uh, it's the parable of the slave who has a unrepayable debt to a king. And the king comes in to say, hey, I'm here to collect, you need to, I need to collect this debt from you. And the slave asks, uh, just falls on his knees and asks for mercy. And the king gives it to him, which is an incredibly gracious thing to do. It's almost as if uh, the parable is purposefully told in such a way that it's almost as if the slave walks out of that room having been completely absolved of his unrepayable debt and he goes to another slave who owes him a very much a significantly lesser sum of money, something that could be paid off within a few days or weeks. And he says, pay me back what you owe. And the guy says, I can't do it yet. Please give me time and I will repay you. He says, no, I want you to pay me now. And he throws him in prison and hands him over. to, uh, to torturers in order that he would re- eventually repay everything that he is owed. And the king is incredibly angry when he hears about this, and he says, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave the same way that I had mercy on you? And what's the parallel? What's the application? We have been repaid in unabsolvable debt by Christ's sacrifice. We have all deserved judgment eternally, and we have been saved from that if we're believers. How dare we refuse to forgive others when they sin against us? That's the application. Now, this doesn't mean that you should be easily trusting or naive towards people with a bad reputation, but it does mean that you must always forgive and always show mercy regarding how you treat them and how you think of them. So practically, do you forgive others and do you refuse to hold grudges or bitterness towards them? That's kind-heartedness, kindness. Letter E, we have humble in spirit. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, humility in general is crucial. Our desires and our wants are to be conformed to God's will. We need to come second to the needs of others. Our own personal interests are not to interfere, And Peter is very specifically going to draw this out with a particular application because he says, humble in spirit, and then he says, 
essentially, that we are to be doing good in response to evil, and that's one of the ways in which humility and being humble in spirit fleshes itself out. He says, not returning evil for evil, and so we have uh, number, number one, really, under humble in spirit, doing good in response to evil. When we talk about not returning evil for evil, it means don't pay, don't, it's the terminology of a transaction. Someone has committed evil against you, Therefore, there's, there's like a bill that is sent to you, that, and, you and that bill is, all right, what evil act are you going to do? You deserve to do evil to them because they did evil to you, so what are you going to do to them? It's saying, no, you're not going to pay them back with evil. Instead, you should be paying them back with good. There's no revenge allowed in the life of a believer. And also, not returning insult for insult. And uh, this one, this one can, can get us in trouble uh, because we are very fond of sarcasm here. Uh, we are very fond of being very witty here, are we not? Uh, if someone makes fun of you or brings to mind some character trait of yours that has made itself evident, um, very quickly you're like, ha, ah, I've got something to fire back at you. And so you do that. And there's some fun that can be had in that when it's, truly playful, when it's truly, literally sarcastic in that way, but it can be very, very dangerous, very dangerous, because a lot of times, uh, if you ever find yourself saying something, and then you go, oh, I didn't mean that, ooh, ooh, be careful, because if you're saying that, well, I mean, it did come out of your mouth, did it not? So if it came out of your mouth, you did at least for a split second, want to say whatever it was that you said. So for you to go back on that, that's kind of being dishonest. You should own up to it and apologize instead and say, I'm sorry for saying that. Um, and if you are insulted in reality, you have no right to be insulting people back because that's not your responsibility. Um, we know that God is the one who will avenge those, his children and so we should not be responding to insults with insults in turn. That's just responding with evil for evil. And so I find this fascinating when he says, he says, instead, we ought to be giving a blessing. We shouldn't be returning evil for evil. We shouldn't be responding with insults towards someone who insults us. Instead, we ought to be giving a blessing. And this is elsewhere in Scripture, Luke 6, 27 through 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And Acts 7, 60, really an incredibly extreme example of this, and yet I think it drives this point home. You guys remember Stephen? One of, one of the men who was appointed uh, by the early church uh, to, accomplish, uh, uh, to accomplish some tasks that the church had for him. He's a very devout man. Uh, and eventually he gets pulled up before the um, Jewish council, and he gives this very long sermon, essentially saying, Christ came and he was predicted in the Old Testament. You saw the signs that Christ was going to be coming. He came and you killed him. And you have completely turned away from God, essentially. And the council is really mad at him for this. So they take him out to the street and they kill him. They stone him to death. They chuck rocks at him until he is bleeding and bruised and uh, suffering from all of those injuries that he dies. And it says in Acts 7.60, says, then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. If that's not proclaiming a blessing upon someone who is cursing you, I don't know what is. He, now, the Lord does hold the sins that people commit against them. Like, that's how he works. He does repay sin with judgment. And yet, it seems quite clear that the role of a Christian is to desire blessing upon even those who are cursing you, even those who may be killing you. We, that ought to be our mentality, our desire, is to bless them, even if they are cursing us. And we leave the results up to the Lord. The Lord may truly bless someone and might even use that to bring them to repentance, and He may not, but it should be our desire to see every person, 
not just the people that we like, not just the people that we want to be saved and we think are, have a chance at being saved, but those that we know hate us, those that we have a hard time loving, those that would do anything if they had the opportunity to get their hands on us, to kill us, to bring us down, to destroy our impact that we might have in society, we should be desiring that they would be blessed of God. That's so, that's so crazy. That's so backwards to a secular mind, and yet it's what we're called to do. We should be giving out blessings. And so practically, do you pray for unbelievers around you? You are not so secluded from the world that you don't know some people or know of some people that aren't saved. And you probably know of some people um, who do not like Christians. You probably know of some people that are difficult to love um, and probably know some people that in particular don't love you. Do you pray for them? Do you pray for their soul? Do you pray that they would be saved? Do you pray that you might be used of God to bring the gospel to them? And do you pray that they would be blessed of God and perhaps you might be used to bring even some kind of physical benefit to them so that perhaps that might be used of the Lord to bring them to salvation. That's something I would challenge you with. That's something that I have, I had never thought of that before until I started studying this passage. And yet it seems incredibly clear that that is what we ought to be doing. We ought to be praying constantly for the souls of those who may be against us. And really that's ultimate humility is it not? And that's, I think, why Peter gives that particular example, because we're supposed to be humble in spirit in all ways, and really there's so much to talk about when you talk about what are all the different ways you can be humble, and yet this particular idea of giving blessing towards those who are literally bringing evil against us, to those who are insulting us, to instead be blessing them, that, is in, that takes such incredible humility, only possible by the power of God. And then Peter gets into his reasoning. He says, for, so he gives us that command, we are to be this, be that, be that, be that, be that. For, here's why, you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. When we see called, we've seen this terminology before. This entails salvation. Peter says that we were saved so that we might inherit a blessing. And we've seen that in detail all the way, back, all the way far back as chapter 1. All the blessings that we receive as believers, first of all, we are saved initially, we are justified, and then we are undergoing the work of sanctification. We have the blessings of being part of the body of Christ. We have the gifts that we have been given. We have a promise of eternal salvation and eternal rest in heaven, eternal opportunity with no more sin to be with the Lord. We have all those blessings. We're going to inherit, we've, we have inherited all those blessings, some of those we don't see yet. And Peter's reminding us of that. You ought to be doing all these things, you ought to be this way, because you were called for a purpose. You were called for a reason. You were called so that you would inherit a blessing, and as a result, this is why you should be acting this way. But he goes further. He, he, we are reading scripture, and we just read a biblical reason for why we should act a certain way. And then within that biblical reason, Peter is gonna point back to the Old Testament Bible, as it were, not to, to provide some biblical basis to his biblical commands. I love it. It's, it's such a great thing about Scripture that all of it is interwoven together. You can't separate it out. And so that's what Peter's doing. We have uh, letter B, the biblical reason, and the psalm, and he quotes from a psalm. He quotes Psalm 34, verses 11 through 16. And letter A, that biblical reason is to inherit a blessing. He says, for the one who desires life, to love and see good days. And that's pretty much literally what number one under that is, if you desire life and good days. And just to pause real quick, who doesn't long for that, right? Who doesn't long to have life, to be alive? And who doesn't long to see good days, as opposed to bad days, as opposed to unhappy days, sad days, terrible days, no good, horrible, very bad days? We would long for good days, would we not? And in a general, proverbial sense, this does include earthly well-being. Do you long to have earthly well-being? Do you long to have earthly life? And 
what is implied is that if we do all the things that the psalm says we should be doing, then we will get those things. Um, But it's just like the book of Proverbs. If you read the book of Proverbs, it's a whole lot of truths and principles, but not guarantees, not exact promises. We may very well be given earthly life, and we may very well be given good days as a result of being righteous in what we see in the rest of the psalm, but it's not guaranteed. What is guaranteed, however, and this is, I think, is what Peter is drawing our mind to because he just talked about we are inheriting blessings as believers. So he is bringing to mind the reality that life in good days in a ultimate, eternal, real sense is eternal life and days that are lived with God's power to accomplish righteousness and ultimately to be completely, perfectly righteous in heaven. But there are conditions for all of that. And so we should be considering the following tests. If we're truly saved and have inherited the blessings of being called, then we'll be reflecting what is declared throughout the rest of this psalm. First, we have, number two, control your tongue. He must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. We've seen this in James 1.26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. You must be striving to keep your words under control. And Christ was the perfect example of this. We saw already in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 22. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Practically, do you lie in any form? Doesn't matter. You straight up just do not give any true information when you're responding to a question or when you're telling somebody something that happened. Or maybe you appeal to bad memory. Someone asks if you did something, you say, oh, I forgot, when instead you actually purposefully decided not to do whatever it was, and then you are able to maybe try and get around it by saying, no, I forgot to do it. Or I thought I did that when you really actually didn't, and actually you're lying. You had no idea whether or not you thought you did it. It could be uh, that you omit certain details that you know are important uh, when you are responding to someone's question, uh, or you are softening the details when you're confessing sin to someone. You say, instead of saying, I was angry at you, and I was very upset at you, and I didn't appreciate this, and I wanted, I wanted this other thing, like you don't go into detail. Instead, you say, I'm sorry for sinning against you. Will you please forgive me? And you try and perhaps lessen the blow, maybe maybe even provide some reasons for why you acted the way that you did so it doesn't seem so bad. There's a lot of ways in which you can lie. And do you lie habitually? If you lie habitually, that is also a bad sign. But also on the other side, on the more fuller sense, do you slander others with your words? Insult them, subtly imply a bad association with them, you're hateful in your tone towards them or when you talk about them. There's a lot of different ways that you can sin with your tongue, and those are only two of them, and it's very brief coverage, but I, if I had to guess, that probably is impactful in some way or another, because I know certainly I am always tempted to want to lie, to protect myself from facing the consequences of my own sin when I sin. So are you controlling your tongue? Because if you desire good days, you must be keeping your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Three, you need to turn towards what is good. You must turn away from evil and do good. Proverbs 16, 17, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his life. Practically, are you dealing, are you dealing with patterns of sin? You all know the different ways in which you particularly wrestle. For me, one of my wrestles that I have is I struggle with laziness. I struggle to desire to put in effort, very similar to what Brian was talking about when he read uh, from his story. I have all these grand schemes, all these grand ideas, things I want to accomplish, things I want to do, and yet when it comes to actually doing it, it's hard for me to want to. And to some of you, that might seem insane. To some of you, you might be going, I wrestle with that too. There's really all ends of the spectrum in that. You all have different ways in which you act, different sins that you wrestle with. Are any of those a pattern in your life? If you are truly desiring to turn away from evil and do good, you should be trying to destroy those patterns. You should be trying to remove them from your life. Habitual lying, habitual laziness, habitual anger or foolishness. Just there's a time, there, there's a time and a place to have fun, to enjoy things, to be silly even. There's also times where it's not appropriate. 
in times where you can be very foolish in the midst of serious situations, and that's not being respectful, and that's not being righteous. And are you looking at your life to find those patterns of sin, and are you, or perhaps are you refusing to deal with secret sin? Might be living elements of a double life. There's things about you that you make sure no one else knows. No one but you and maybe anyone else that might be involved with whatever it is. Um, and you're keeping that to yourself. You're sinning in that regard, and you are keeping it to yourself. You're trying to hide it, and it's a secret. But God sees it, and he knows that you are going down an evil path in that way. You should be desiring to turn away from evil or pornography. Uh, are you living a life in which there are times in which you just want to see things that bring you some kind of satisfaction in a way in which you're not supposed to be doing? Those things will destroy you. True believer will not allow sin to remain. They will strive to remove it. Number four, pursue peace. He must seek peace and pursue it. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Practically, is there anyone you hate? I mean, that's sin. <laughs> uh, it's pretty obvious, but sometimes we kind of just get into these ruts where we're living our lives and then there's people that we like and people that we don't like and we kind of associate with them and socialize with the people we like and we don't socialize with the people we don't like and ultimately we get into this realization that, oh wow, I really don't like this person. I, I hate this person. I wish that they would just be out of my life. I wish that, oh, that's, that's hatred. That's sinful. You should be seeking peace, not enmity. Love others, have compassion on them. And is there anyone that you know hates you for whatever reason? Could be a believer, could be an unbeliever. Have you done what you can, what is within your power, to make that right? And, it's, and sometimes it's up to them on whether or not they're going to respond well, but have you done everything you can? And do you pray for that as well? Those are the conditions. Those are what we ought to be doing if we desire life and good days. And we need to close with this final section of the psalm. Psalmist says, for the eyes of the Lord, and Peter is quoting, for the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As we close, I'd like us to turn to Exodus chapter 34. Wow, big jump, right? Exodus 34, starting in verse 6. This very very closely, and really you can see it through all kinds of other areas in Scripture. This sums up the key important factors of, of God's character, that he is towards the righteous and he is against the wicked. And it is described for us in a very glorious way in Exodus 34. You remember Moses is going up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. Um, he's going to speak face to face with God himself. And earlier on he was saying, Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to be able to see you. I know I speak with you, but I want to see you. And the Lord says, if you saw me, you would die. So instead, I'm going to hide you and I'm going to let my glory pass before you. You're going to see a glimpse of it. But in Exodus 34, it seems it's very interesting. It says, the Lord passed by in front of him. And, and Moses doesn't write about what God looked like, the, 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 the faint glow of what he saw. He does, he's like, I, he, the whole thing was he wanted to see God and then when he finally gets to see a piece of God, he doesn't even describe it. Why? Because there's something so much more important than being able to see what God looks like, and that's knowing who God is. Because what God says is he says, he passed by, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children 
and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. <laughs> and it has the little addendum, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Guys, we, we kind of blazed through this section of, with a lot of uh, practical discussion about how we ought to be living our lives. But if you don't believe that that's what God is, if you don't believe that God loves the righteous and is going to respond to their prayers and is going to give his blessing upon them and is going to save them if they cry out to him and repent, trusting in Christ's sacrifice, and if you don't believe that he is against those who do evil, that he's going to bring punishment against evil, maybe you don't even believe that he exists at all, if you don't believe that, you're, you're not going to do any of these things. You're not going to be harmonious. You're not going to be sympathetic. You're not going to be kind. You're just going to be living your life to whatever it is that you want to do. And maybe you might have some elements that look like you're being kind, that look like you're being in harmony, but really you're just going with the flow as opposed to actually trying to be harmonious. If, if this God is not the God that you serve, then none of the practical application that we talked about tonight is going to have any effect on you. You're not going to have the strength to accomplish any of those things. And I would challenge you to consider, do you know the reality of who God is? Do you live in such a way that you are always remembering that he loves and pays attention to and favors those who are righteous, those who are his children, those who are believers, and that he does not favor those who are wicked, and that he will bring retribution, he will bring judgment? It is absolutely certain. And so some final questions for you. One, just bringing to mind what we most recently talked about, do you long for life in good days? Do you long for life in good days? Both, and less importantly in a physical sense, and most importantly in a spiritual and eternal sense. Do you long for life in good days? And if you do, then you should be striving to pursue these practical things we've talked about. Two, do you recognize that being passive is not enough? As you were, hopefully as you were listening to many of those things, being harmonious means you've got to pay attention to other people, pay attention to your own life. Um, you're, if you're trying to strive to turn away from what's wicked, you're supposed to be paying attention to what's going on in your life and making changes to it in a righteous manner. If you're trying to be kind towards other people, you're paying attention to their needs, towards their desires, seeking to be gracious towards them. There's so much activity in the Christian life. Being passive is not going to cut it. And third, do you recognize that there's no room in the church for selfishness? Hopefully this is the other thing that you saw, is that if we are to be living as believers in the church according to these principles, then we can't be selfish. We have to be emulating Christ, who was selfless. And if you have elements in your life in which you're like, I, this is all I care about. I just care, I, I care about this or these particular things about my life, and that's what I want, and that's what I'm going to go for, you may want to very seriously consider your priorities and consider whether or not even you might be a believer. Because a true believer longs to love God and serve His will first, and everything else comes underneath that. So, do you long for life in good days? Do you recognize that you need to be active, not passive, and that there's no room in the church for selfishness. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time that we could have, and I pray that the rest of this evening would be full of joy, be full of fellowship, be full of selflessness as we desire to perhaps even tonight put into practice some of the things we talked about. In Jesus' name, amen.